0: Psalm 65. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. You who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you you atone for our transgressions. Look at verse 4. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts we shall we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house the holiness of your temple you may be seated and father we once again we just cry out to you we are needy we come to you as beggars We ask you to feed us, to speak to us. I ask you to help me to be faithful. Help me to be a faithful slave. And I pray that the congregation would be faithful in their listening. So help us, please. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts, Lord, be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Think about words. Many words that we say and that we hear create images and thoughts and reactions in our minds, in our hearts. And you think about our society, we live in a society very very sensitive to words, right? It's all about triggering. Oh, you say something, that trigger, trigger warning, and everything that you say might trigger something and people get upset. Uh, of course, it's an extreme, but there is a reality where words bring certain thoughts and reactions to us. And I would say rightly so. there are some words that for us Christians, that must must create a sense of repulsion and, and say no. that's evil." Words like rape, idolatry. Bestiality, homosexuality, adultery, abortion, suicides. Those are words that when we hear should automatically create something that's very displeasing in the eyes of the Lord. On the other hand, there are words that when we hear create a sense of joy and happiness. Think about the Lord's Supper when we celebrate water baptism. The word praises create that sense of joy, pictures of something happy taking place. Uh, Sadly, in the vast majority of the churches in America, the words election, unconditional election, predestination, reprobation, create strong emotions, but negative emotions. Edwin Palmer he says, When the terms predestination or divine election are used, a shiver goes down many people's spines, and they picture men caught in the clutches of a horrible, impersonal fate. So for many people, and I would say sadly that I was one of them, the words election, predestination triggers images of a cruel, barbaric, unmerciful God who unjustly chooses some people to be saved and rejects the innocent. As if there was any innocent longing to go to heaven. Jeff Robinson, who says, For many professing Christians, predestination is the mother of all swear words. Let the pastor breathe it in the presence of the deacon board, and he risks firing, fiscous or worse. A God who chooses is anti-American and anti-democracy. Oh, predestination. This speaks of a long-faced religion, a doctrinal novelty invented by a maniacal 6th century minister whose progeny manufactured a theological ism, Calvinism that has plunged countless souls into a godless eternity. And that's exactly how so many people think about predestination and election. And these images, these thoughts, these words about predestination election could not be further from the truth. I believe this is one of the greatest mischaracterizations and distortions of biblical doctrines. To think the doctrine of election and predestination as something cruel and barbaric, unjust, According to the teaching of the Scriptures, the words election, predestination, are supposed to create in Christians a profound sense of comfort, exuberant joy, unshakable confidence, and unceasing thanksgiving. That's what the Bible teaches us. So my prayer is that as we are walking through this doctrine of unconditional election, my prayer is that our hearts, our minds would be triggered when we hear the words election, predestination. With pictures of a God who is immensely graceful, gloriously just, just, extravagant in mercy, and sovereign in His ways. That's my prayer as we study this doctrine. And why are we studying this doctrine? We are in a series trying to explain what we mean by being a Reformed Baptist church. So we are first walking through the Reformed aspect of our church. And we look at the solas of the Reformation, how the Reformation was just a process of going back to the Scriptures. And there are the five major solas of the Reformation, we saw that. And how developing the five major solas, we have the doctrines of grace, the five points of the doctrines of grace. And that's where we are right now. So unconditional election, we have here unconditional election, the doctrine of God's unconditional love and gracious predestination of some unto salvation, was in the heart of the Reformation because it is in the heart of the Bible, as we shall see today. Thus, it's in the heart of this church, because it is in the heart of the Scriptures. So, as we continue looking at the five points that we are studying, we finish the first one, the T of total depravity. And as we saw the doctrine, once you understand the doctrine of total depravity, that will beg unconditional election. We need, we cannot save ourselves, we need a Savior. But We not only need a God who is mighty to save us, we need a God who is what? Merciful. Merciful. And that's what we see with the doctrine of unconditional election. The first thing that God does for us is choosing us. So... Here's the outline, we're going to continue the outline, we saw last Lord's Day unconditional election defined, and now we're going to move to unconditional election verified by walking through the scriptures. So let me just remind you what we saw last Sunday, because we are very prone to forget, and even I myself forget what I thought. So, we saw the. That. that's why I bring notes with me, because I know my limitations, Uh, we saw that the doctrine of election and predestination is undeniable. It's it's all over the scriptures. So the question is not, do you believe in election? The question is what? On what basis are we elected or predestined, right? That's the question, because unless you remove pages of your Bible, the words election and predestination and chosen are all there. So, the question becomes, on what basis God chooses some and predestines some unto salvation? And we saw how early on, especially during the Reformation, we can move even before. That's the major uh, problem that Augustine and Pelagius had, was that man is free to choose. And that God chooses those who chose him first. And we say, no, that's not what the Bible teaches We believe that the election is unconditional. So we define unconditional election as the aspect of God's eternal decree of all things in which He sovereignly and lovingly selects according to the incomprehensible counsel of His own will and nothing good foreseen in us those whom He will effectually call, justify, sanctify and glorify by union with Jesus Christ, to the praise of God's glory alone. So that's how we define unconditional election. And I don't have time to continue there. We had a whole sermon on this. So now we're going to move to verifying. So we define it. The definition was basically, I told you on Wednesday night, the what we did the first part is basically a systematic theology, and now we move to the biblical theology where we trace this through Genesis to Revelation. So, we're going to verify that through the teaching of the Scriptures. And as we think about the Bible, the story of the Bible, if somebody was ask, asking you, uh, uh, Sean, I see you reading your Bible. Sean, tell me, what is the Bible all about? What is the story of the Bible? Somebody am going ask Stacia. Stacia, you always tell me about the Bible, but tell me, what is the story of the Bible? What is the main theme? I believe that the story of the Bible, the Bible is the glorious drum of redemption. In which our triune Lord, making a way, He makes a way for a people to dwell in His presence. And behold His glorious face. That's from Genesis. We see God creating man to dwell with Him. Enjoy His presence. And in Revelation, the Bible ends with man being remade to dwell with Him and enjoy His presence. So, Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 22, tells us what this story is all about. And in between, you have this great drama of how that's going to take place. So, I like what Morales says. He says, life with God in the house of God, this was the original goal of creation of the cosmos, and which then becomes the goal of redemption, the new creation. And we know as we thinking about the story of the Bible, we know that this whole drama, this whole story, has as its backbone the covenants that God is making with His people. So the covenants kind of hold together this majestic story of God pursuing a people for Himself. So, to quote Morales again, he says, The covenant structure driving redemptive history has one aim for God's people to be planted on the mountain of God so they may dwell in his house and gaze upon his beauty forever. It's moreover precisely this aim that generates all the dramatic tension in the biblical drama. That plummets one into the perplexing dilemma of how a holy God can abide among a sinful people bent upon rebellion. Total depravity right there. And that lifts up the soul into the mystery of a divine love that opens that way. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. God pursuing a people. A people rebellious and he pursues that people through a series of covenants culminating with Jesus and brings these people into himself to dwell with him. So, the story of the Bible is the story of the triune God who unconditionally chooses a people for himself through covenants culminating with Jesus in the new covenant. Because the whole covenantal backbone of the Bible's drama declares the unconditional love of God. Because nobody deserved God's covenant. It's not like people were deserving of God's covenant. God always makes a covenant with somebody who do not deserve that. It's all of grace. God's covenants are chosen relationships in which He made the choice. God alone chose whoever He desired to have a covenant with. We need to keep that in mind. A covenant is based on a choice. When you get married with somebody, you are choosing to love that person, to give yourself to that person. It's a choice. But you see, in our human marriage covenants, there are conditions. You're looking at the spouse, and you need to have conditions, especially for a Christian. That person got to love the Lord, Right? I just want to serve the Lord. But not when God comes to make a covenant. You're not looking at Adam or Noah or Abraham or David or Israel and making conditions. He comes and He makes the covenant. I like what Scott Heffman he says. He says, Hence, to speak of a covenant relationship is to speak first and foremost of God's sovereign Self-determined election motivated by His love. And that's the story of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the story of God's sovereign grace towards a people that does not deserve Him. And yet, He pursues them and He saves them through a series of covenants. Okay? So, when you understand the story of the Bible, brothers and sisters, you cannot remove unconditional election. <laughs> When you understand the story of the Bible, it's God pursuing a people to dwell with Him, and you understand the depravity of sin and how sin is horrible, say it has to be God unconditionally choosing a people. Because if it was based on condition, nobody would be saved. So it's one thing for us to say this. Let's look at the scriptures to see what the scriptures reveal about unconditional election. Uh, it's fascinating if you go to the New Testament, if you go to Romans 9-11. That's what we call the Mount Everest of the doctrine of election and predestination, as Paul is dealing with this doctrine in Romans Romans 9-11. And that's the place in the Scriptures where you, have, where you have the greatest amount of Old Testament quotation. So just in the, those chapters, you have the greatest amount of quotations from the Old Testament. Implying that Paul is developing this doctrine of election, predestination based on what? On the Old Testament. He's not creating that. He's just bringing the Old Testament to the surface. So let's start with the... I'm dividing here in the the Hebrew structure of the Bible. So we have the Torah, we have the prophets, and then we have the writings. So first the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books, the five books of Moses. And Moses becomes the first Great proclaimer of sovereign grace. Moses becomes the standard bearer where he brings this banner of God's unconditional election. And right in Genesis, right in the beginning of Genesis, we can see that taking place. When after the fall, nobody deserves to be saved. And yet God comes and he chooses one line. Remember that Eve has different sons. But he chooses, God chooses one line, not the line of Cain, the line of Seth. So you see God choosing right there. Uh, Peter Gentry and Wellam, they say, following the laws of Eden, redemption is linked to the election of a people, Noah and his family, the descendants of Abraham, and uniquely through the Davidic king. So, going to Genesis, we see in Genesis 6, God choosing Noah. God chose Noah. It's very clear. It says, and Noah found grace or favor. That's hand the Hebrew for grace. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the emphasis here is that God was gracious. God was gracious. Nobody deserved to be saved. And God comes and He chooses one family. And let me tell you, this family is messed up. Because even after the flood, you see how messed up they are. So God chooses one family to be the instrument of salvation and to be saved. As we come to Genesis, let me ask you, where in Genesis, Genesis is the call of Abraham? Do you remember? Genesis 12. Yes, good job, guys. Genesis 12. They call us Abraham. What comes prior to Genesis 12? Good, Genesis 11. That's wonderful. And what is Genesis 11 all about? The Tower of Babel. And what is the Tower of Babel? But the exile, God's condemnation and judgment, where all the nations are now in exile disperse. So that's the context of the calling of Abraham. Out of the mass of sinful humanity, the Lord chooses one man, Abraham. And you might think, of course, Abraham. Holy man. That's not what the Bible says. It's not like Abraham was doing devotionals every morning before the Lord came to him. Actually, according to Joshua... Joshua chapter 24, we read that Abraham and his fathers were idol worshippers. Huh. Abraham was an idol worshipper before the Lord came and rescued him. So, Heffman he says, Clearly then, the call of Abraham and the continuation of his covenant relationship with God are both acts of sovereign, unconditional election and grace. God did not rescue Abraham from idolatry because of who Abraham was, but in spite of who Abraham was. Apart from God's saving acts in his life, Abraham would have remained an idol worshiper in Mesopotamia. And if God had not continued graciously to intervene in Abraham's life, he would have died in Haran, with his father, Terah. So, God passes a multitude of fallen men. And he chooses one fallen man, Abraham, to be the instrument of his salvation. Unconditional election right there. Not like Abraham is holier and deserving of God's grace. So, in Genesis 18, we read Genesis 18:18. The Lord says, For I have what? Chosen. Yada, the verb, the Hebrew verb Yada, that means to know. I have known him, Abraham. And here begins the we start seeing this word to know, to foreknow. And implies a covenantal relationship, to be chosen. That's the, that, that's the, the concept that Paul is going to use in Romans 18 for those whom God foreknew. It's not that God was looking ahead in time. No, he's using the same sense here. To know as a covenantal relationship of choosing someone. And that continues through Genesis. So, God chooses Jacob over whom? Esau. And not because Esau was hairy. And Jacob was all nice and cute. No, both were heinous before the Lord. Both were filthy. I mentioned here that most of us would like to have Esau as our neighbor. Uh, I don't know, I think it was Joseph who said, yes, of course, you could go hunting and fishing together, yes. You don't want a deceiver as your neighbor. Not like Jacob deserves to be chosen. Esau, the older one, was legally entitled to, inher- to inheritance. But God chose Jacob, the younger one. God chose Joseph over his brothers to be the instrument of salvation. And God chose the line of Judah to be the line of the Messiah. So we start seeing just in Genesis, God's sovereign election. And we need to keep in mind, and here is important, as we are working through the old covenants, we keep in mind that, yes, there was one aspect of this election. There was an election for service. The whole nation is being elected for service. But even that, inside the election of service, there were those who were elected for salvation. That's why Paul said that not all Israel were it Israel, and that's why in the old covenant you have an aspect of the remnant, and things change with the new covenant, because the great promise of the new covenant was in Jeremiah. That our sins would be forgiven. All the members would have their sins forgiven. And all the members of the covenant would know God. knowing in a covenantal way. So, as we move to Exodus. Exodus. God chooses one baby boy, Moses. Among many babies who were left to die. Drowned. And God chooses one man, Moses, to be his mouthpiece. To reveal to him his glory and to use him as the great savior, human savior in the Old Testament. In Exodus 3:17 Exodus 3:17 the Lord says "I have surely seen the affliction of my people. that's covenantal language, unconditional election. He chose Israel to be his people. In Exodus 4:22, Exodus 4, the Lord calls Israel my firstborn son, implying that he adopted them. Adoption implies unconditional election. This is my firstborn son. In Exodus 19, that's a glorious passage. Right? As they are arriving at Mount Sinai, they arrive at Mount Sinai, God is going to enter into covenant with them, giving them the law, start the Mosaic covenant. And here's the preamble. The Lord says, you yourselves, Exodus 19, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to Myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, you shall be My treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is Mine. Right here you have the whole outline of the book of Exodus. But what is glorious here is verse 4, that the language is clear that the Lord did all those things, and they did not deserve anything. I rescued you. I bore you. I came. Showing them that. It was all by his grace and his mercy. So. Turner says. The covenant of Sinai. Because we always think about the covenant of Israel. As just being obligations and obligations. We've got to remember that it's all about grace. First of all. Grace and mercy. The covenant of Sinai commenced. Not. With a code of conduct, but with a declaration of Yahweh's gracious election and salvation of Israel. And then if you continue walking through Exodus, God enters into a covenant, just like a wedding ceremony where Israel now is called his bride. And in ancient times, there was an act of unconditional election for a groom to choose his bride. In Exodus 33, 19, we have those Glorious words that Paul will quote in Romans 9 where the Lord says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So we see that in the book of Exodus, God's sovereignty in electing those who do not deserve. We We could go to Leviticus and see how even the laws in Leviticus are a revelation of God's unconditional election of them. And God elects their menu. And their wardrobe. And every time they would eat something or dress. Imagine every morning they would be eating something or getting dressed. They need to be reminded that they were elected by God. Out of all the nations, God had grace and mercy on them. Elect them. And even elected their wardrobe. How they are supposed to dress. How they are supposed to eat. Remind them of their unconditional election. We move to Numbers. And in Numbers we see the people of Israel now being formed as an army. They are being structured as an army to march. And right there, the picture of an army is the picture of unconditional election. The king would choose his servants. The king would choose his army. But the king who had the power and the authority to do that. That's why in Exodus 15, 4, I think. Exodus 15:4. When he talking about the, the the song of Moses as they cross the sea, talks about the Pharaoh's chosen ones, the Pharaoh's chosen ones, referring to his soldiers, how they all drowned. So it's even the when the Lord speaks as His army, the Israel His army, the Church His army, is a picture of unconditional election right there. And then we move to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy seven, for example. That's since the clearest statement in the Torah about God's unconditional election of Israel. It says in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through 8, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It, It was not, look at that, it was not because you were... More in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. You were the weakest, the ugliest. And yet I set my love upon you. You did not deserve, you did not do anything to deserve that. Just to show the glory of my mercy and my grace. So the Torah, the Pentateuch is the foundation. And we see the doctrine of unconditional election right there. As we move to the prophets, the Nevin of the Tanakh, the prophets. Remember, the prophets are divided in the former prophets and the latter prophets. And you think about starting with Joshua. Joshua is chosen by God. God chose Joshua. Not only to be saved, but to leave Israel also. In Joshua 11, we see the sovereignty of God in reprobation. It says, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. The sovereignty of God, gracious to some, just and righteous to others. The Lord unconditionally elected David. Remember, he tells Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go; I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And look how he says, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. God unconditionally choosing David. And remember that David was not mighty, strong, right? Similar in first Kings 8:16, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. Think about the prophets as we move to the latter prophets in Jeremiah. Of all the men in Israel during the 6th century B.C., God chose one man, Jeremiah. And he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Look look at that, the knowing of a covenantal loving relationship. I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you a prophet to the nations. Unconditionally electing Jeremiah not only to be saved, but to be his mouth." Walter Kaiser says thus both prior to his conception and while he was still a developing embryo God had already decided to choose him and set him apart. So there's so many texts in Jeremiah, Isaiah and so if you're taking notes in Jeremiah 18 for example Jeremiah 18 and Isaiah 45 talks about God being the one in charge of the clay, the potter and the clay and the Lord using that to show his sovereignty in electing some, and Paul is going to use that in Romans 9. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ezekiel 16. Please open your Bibles to Ezekiel 16. That's a wonderful text. Ezekiel 16. verse 3, so says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites, your father was an Amorite and your mother Hittite, and as for your birth on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths, No, eye pitted you, To do any of these things to you. Out of compassion for you. But you were cast out on the open field. For you were abhorred. On the day that you were born. And when I passed by you. And saw you. Wallowing in your blood. I said to you in your blood. Live. I said to you in your blood. Live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall, and arrived at full adornment. He goes on, verse 8, When I passed by you again, and saw you, behold, you are at the age of love, and I spread the corner of my garments over you, and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you, and entered into a covenant with you, declared the Lord God, and you became mine. And you see, the picture here is of this ugly, dead baby, because it's in the open field, it's as, as good as dad. And the Lord comes and He has mercy on that infant. And He brings that infant to Himself. And He enters into a covenant with that infant. And that's a picture, brothers and sisters, of all of us dead, dead, as good as dead. There was nothing in this infant. Nothing but loathsomeness. Nothing, therefore, to merit esteem. Nothing in the infant but inability. Nothing, therefore, but it could help itself. Spurgeon says, So when sinners are saved, it's only and solely because God will do it. To magnify His free, unpurchased, unsought grace. That's a picture of all of us. Ugly. Repulsive. And God has mercy on us. Let's move to the last book of the prophets. As we come to the book of the twelve, Malachi. And in Malachi, the people are really questioning God's love because they returned from exile, but they have not seen all the promises. All the great promises that the Lord had promised with the Second Exodus. And they're questioning God's love. Does He love us? Because Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they all said all these wonderful things will take place. And here we are, still living in misery. And God comforts them with the doctrine of unconditional election. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. God comforts his people with the doctrine of unconditional election. I love you. I love you and I'm for you. So, we see in the prophets also, just like in the Torah, God's unconditional election. His sovereign choice of people who do not deserve to be saved. As we move to the writings, and I'm going to just focus on the book of Psalms. I'm not going to Job or Ecclesiastes or Proverbs, Ruth. I'm just going to focus on Psalms here. And in the book of Psalms, we saw how the book of Psalms teaches us to sing about total depravity. We can only sing about God's grace once we first sing about our depravity. And now, once we learn how to sing about our depravity, now we can sing about God's grace. And I love Psalm 65. And I think verse 4 is one of my favorite. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because that is just the summary of the whole Bible. Here's the summary of the Bible. How happy, how blessed is the man whom you choose, and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts, we shall be satisfied with the good things of your house, your holy temple. The greatest blessing, the greatest blessing of all, is to be chosen by God to dwell in his courts. The blessed man is the one who dwells in the courts of the house of the Lord. And you see how God saves us. The great purpose of His salvation is for His glory and that we may glorify by dwelling and enjoying Him forever. Morales says, in many ways, this happiness describes the history of Israel. And I would say the whole church. Chosen by God, caused to draw near to Him through the tabernacle cultus. And that's not cult. Cultus is Worship, the, all the, the aspects of the worship service that they had in Israel. And given the hope of dwelling in His presence within the house of God. Psalm 65. 4. How blessed, how happy is the man whom God chooses to draw near to Him. Another Psalm, Psalm 135. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing for his name, for it's pleasant. And here's the first reason he gives for praising the Lord. Sing, praise the Lord, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel is his own possession. And then he's going to develop the creation, that we are to praise God because of creation. But he places election before creation. We praise him for our election before we praise him for creation. Why? Yes, because our election in eternity past. So, we see, that's just a glimpse. I'm just giving a glimpse of the Old Testament. Okay, just a little bit of what the Old Testament teaches us. And you can see it's very clear that the Old Testament shouts the doctrine of unconditional election. As we move to the New Testament, and I've just started the New Testament here, and next Lord's Day you're going to finish the New Testament, just starting the New Testament. We see how all these teachings of the Old Testament now is fulfilled, clarified, and expanded in the New Testament. Christ Jesus comes as the Chosen One. In Luke chapter 9, and He goes as He's going to the mountain, and He's going to show His glory to James, Peter, and John, the voice from heaven comes. Luke 9, chapter 15, and the Father says, this is My Son, My Chosen One. Listen to Him. And you start seeing how all the chosen people in the Old Covenant, in the New Covenant, they're all chosen in Christ, the Chosen One, who embodies God's people. The New Covenant community is found in Christ the true Israel. And all the members of the New Covenant know Christ, know God. No wonder that all the titles that were given to Israel under the old covenant now is passed to the church under the new covenant. All the titles they spoke of God's unconditional election. The church is the chosen one. Read Paul's letters. Chosen and beloved one. The beloved one. Israel was the beloved. Fulfilled in Christ who is the true Israel and passed to his church. Adopted. We can call God Abba. The bride of Israel of Yahweh is the church, the army, all passed through the church, showing this continuity and discontinuity in God's redemptive plan. Well, let's move to the book of Acts first, the book of Acts. We, we call the book of Acts, the Acts of what? The Apostles, right? That's a, it is a misleading title. It's actually the Acts of the Sovereign Lord Jesus, through His Spirit, right? Uh, uh, Alan Thompson, he has a book called The Acts of the Reason, Lord Jesus Christ. And I love that, because it is. It's the Acts of the Reason, Lord, through His Spirit now. What Jesus was doing in Luke, while on earth, now Jesus continues doing in Acts, now in heaven, through His Holy Spirit. The whole book of Acts is about the sovereignty of God. The same God who chose the patriarchs also chose people from different nations, tribes, and towns to be part of His people. So I want to invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And in verse 13, we have Paul and Barnabas now in Antioch, and they are preaching. And if you read the whole sermon, guess what it's about? What is the book all about? The book of Acts. God's sovereignty, right? The sovereignty of God. If you read this. This sermon from Paul is all about God's sovereignty, in the history of Israel. Look at verse seventeen. Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Look at the sovereign of God in choosing people. And then, okay, so Paul preaches this sermon, and you come towards the end of the sermon. We hear in verse 48. And when the Gentiles... Here's Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, and when the Gentiles heard... This message. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And what? And as many as were appointed to eternal life, what? Believed. Those were one of those texts, when I hated the doctrine of grace, that I had the hardest time. Because there is no way to change the order of the verbs here. There is grammar. Your only hope is that somebody will find a, a, an earlier manuscript that has no such thing. Right? But even that would be messed up. As many as were appointed to eternal life, why? You see, it's not that they believe and then God appointed them to eternal life, they believed why? Because they were appointed. Appointed by whom? The Sovereign God. The Sovereign Lord. As God chose Israel, verse 17, God chooses disbelieving Gentiles. The believer does not elect God. God elects the believer. Amen? We chose Christ, why? Because He first chose us. Amen? Amen? And we see also how the doctrine of election does not minimize preaching and evangelism. It's actually the opposite. We know that God has His elect, and we know that God used the means of preaching, and that's why we preach. Because His elect must hear, must listen to the good news to be saved. And it's a beautiful statement. And and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Lord, the word of the Lord. And that's why election is all about. Praises and glory to God. Now as we move, let's move really quick to the letters of Paul. Hey, okay, we could go more in Acts, but let's go to Paul's letters. And as we move to Paul, he is the apostle, he is the greatest besides Jesus, he's the greatest preacher of sovereign election. This man here, he understood this doctrine of unconditional election by divine revelation in the scriptures, and by personal experience. He was the least likely candidate for salvation. And yet Paul stands as the very personification of the doctrine of unconditional election. I can say that Paul is the poster child of unconditional election. This man had letters in his hands as he was traveling to Damascus to drag Christians to trial when the unconditional grace of Christ appeared. And then he became intimately aware of what unconditional election means. So, as we come to Paul, and I like what Thomas Reiner Thomas Reiner has studied Paul's letters for so many years, and he says the following about Paul's understanding of election he says Paul forges an inseparable link between his gospel of grace, apart from meritorious works, and divine election. Showing that election is at the very heart of his gospel of grace. If one shears off election, if you remove election, then not much is left of grace. Such grace is effective because it has been promised before history began. And as we go to First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians 1, Paul opens his letter with thanksgiving and thanksgiving for God's election. So he says, for we know brothers, brothers, why? They were adopted by God. Unconditionally adopted by God. Loved by God. Did they do anything to deserve the love of God? No, loved by God. Look at all the titles that belong to Israel. Now, the church, that he has chosen you. For we know brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, full conviction." So, here he opens this doctrine, this letter, just praising the Lord for choosing them. Choosing them. So, as we move to Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. Also, Paul says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says, but we ought, verse 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers loved by the Lord. Why? Why? Because God chose you as the first fruit to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Paul just in the preceding verse, he just told about those who reject the truth and they perish. And now he talks about those who receive the truth. And they receive the truth because they were chosen by God to do that. So you can see... That the doctrine of unconditional election cannot, cannot trigger thoughts and images of a cruel, mean, barbaric God. is the opposite. It's of a merciful, gracious, loving God. Paul's heart, you can see, we are always to give thanks to God. His heart, his mind is overflowing with thanksgiving when he thinks about God's election that He would unconditionally elect some to be saved. So the story of the Bible, the great story of a righteous, holy, and yet merciful God, who chooses an undeserving people to dwell in His glorious presence. Think about this. If we remove unconditional election, the Bible becomes the most miserable, the saddest story of all. If we remove God's gracious election, the story of the Bible becomes the most miserable story of all. So, we join our voices with the psalmist. And we say, how happy, how blessed is the man whom you choose and cause to approach you. That he made, that he made well in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the good things of your house. Your holy." The chosen ones are the happiest ones. There is no such thing as frozen chosen. Right? The frozen chosen. No, the chosen ones are the happiest ones. The most evangelistic, the most thankful, the most merciful, the most gracious ones, because we know that we don't deserve. Amen? So, I pray that as we continue this journey on unconditional action, that our hearts would enlarge with gratitude, thanksgiving, and that we would be humbled before His presence. That would create in us humility. That would drag us to the dust, because that's the place where we need to be. And just lift our eyes and say, thank you. I never deserved and I will never deserve to be saved. Father, we come before you and we join our voices with the psalmist and we say how happy and how blessed we are to be chosen by you, to come into your courts, to dwell in your presence, and to behold your smiling face. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, I pray that this teaching, I pray that this doctrine would humiliate us, Lord. Humbles us. And at the same time, that we would be lifted up to the highest heavens to praise you and thank you for all eternity. So please help us, Lord. Help us. Help us to rejoice. Help us to look at one another and see your work in our lives, Lord. Help us to be like Paul and give thanks. Give thanks for electing hell-deserving sinners, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.